Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back to the Addiction Connection podcast. This is our special edition COVID Echo summary podcast numero ocho. I think, well, I think addiction doctors should spend all their time doing COVID. Hmm. Is there a meeting for that? Um, Anyway, so today was, it was, I don't know, it was just a really cool thing that kind of came together. We had uh, Dr. Amanda Nasca, a med school classmate of mine, again, um, the addiction doctor up at Essentia Duluth. She's not addiction. She's infectious disease. (laughs) I said addiction, didn't I? Yes, infectious disease. Excuse me. Um, From Essentia, come back and give some updates since the last time she was here. And then um, a very interesting case review, which overlapped super awesomely with Dr. Gopal Punjabi, the radiologist from Hennepin Healthcare. Punjabi. I wish I was Kurt Michael Punjabi. Just sounds cool. Sounds way more cool than Divine. Well, Divine's pretty neat. Bell. Anyway, so Amanda kind of just did some of the updates, um, which was nice because at the end we didn't leave all that much time for the incident command team. So um, overall, 3 million COVID cases now worldwide, 213,000 COVID related deaths, which is way bigger than Little Falls. Yes. And of course, uh, right now the U.S. stands at roughly a million cases. And in Minnesota, a little bit less. Uh, We're in the 3,000s now. But interestingly, uh, it was pointed out how we do have more cases uh, that resulted in death than actually uh, Wisconsin has so far. Yeah, I think a couple of weeks ago we were at about half the numbers as Wisconsin, and now we've surpassed them. Yeah. Um, And we'll kind of get to that, but a lot of that looks long-term care facility Based. And we'll get to that at the end of this. But. So she talked a little bit about uh, some of the clinical features that have been, been really in the literature, some of the cytokine, cytokine storm uh, information, uh, some of these um, necrotizing encephalitis cases, which uh, really have not been validated as COVID yet, but uh, very interesting. Um, conjunctivitis, which has been uh, an interesting twist to the coronavirus. Uh, and interestingly, I've seen two patients who actually had been in Florida and I think I mentioned this previously, that had cough, fever, and conjunctivitis. So I'm actually waiting for an antibody. And uh, I'll definitely on the next episode uh, say whether or not that was positive. Yeah, and, you know, she mentioned the whole thrombus thing and the coagulopathy, which we're going to kind of push to Thursday. In two days we are having a hematologist on to talk about some of those um, uh, anti or all the coagulopathies associated um, and then the viral exanthems, actually, there's a lot more coming out in the literature about um, different rashes and different dermatology things and different dermatology findings. So I think that's very interesting as well. Well, I think it would have been, I actually just got an email with all these pictures of all these exanthems that may be COVID-19. And I think it would have been easier if they would put the ones that couldn't be um, COVID-19 <laughs> because there were a ton of them. Pretty much everything. Yeah. So Poison Ivy looks just like COVID-19. That's not true. Not true, but welcome to Minnesota in the spring. Um, So what they are talking about and what Amanda mentioned a a little bit of what they're seeing, especially in northern Minnesota, is that patients are um, even getting discharged with some pulse oximeters um, from the hospital to kind of monitor their own oxygenation because there's that whole teetering of do you need to be admitted, do you not, Um, and kind of looking at 
For the average patient has sat below 93%, but this is very case dependent. She definitely pointed out. Um, I'd, li- I'd like a nickel for every doctor that's checked their O2 sats because I think we all think we've got it. Just a I, thought. I might have an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know Dr. Bell has been checking hers with her iPhone. Ironically, my heart rate at rest is lower than Kurt's. It's like so. eight. <laughs> <laughs> I have a cold heart. Anyway, she did talk about some of the diagnostic difficulties. And I just, I found this part really interesting because we have been, you know, questioning a lot of these diagnosing and the testing and PCR, which of course is, you know, how you diagnose this and the, the, um, the acute phase, um, how the temperature can really vary at 56 degrees uh, Celsius or higher um, can actually kind of basically kill this virus off and then the test can be a false negative. Um, and then in elderly people, she mentioned that they have a high false negative rate, which is also very complicated and confusing considering all the long-term care populations. And I, I, I don't know if we have the bullet point written down, but how just it was interesting that she used the term like basically their immune system's just so tired and it can't possibly keep up with making new antibodies. It's made so many antibodies from, you know, all the different dirt things that the old people ate that <laughs> it can't possibly make anymore. I mean, old being 80 and above, is that correct? Sure. Okay. And and I think the one of the things that she was talking about is how in the elderly this can present in a number of different ways. And and we do see different things in the elderly. And I have to say that when I see somebody coming in and it's from a fall, uh, one of the things I'm thinking about now is COVID because uh, they do get weak and they're having issues and they may not have a fever. Uh, but I think even with falls, we have to be aware that that uh, can be a potential. Everybody's favorite diagnosis is an elderly person in the ER is fall because really finding out why they fell, you know, and if it's, if it's this kind of silent hypoxia or they have just a little bit of hypoxia, an elderly person could easily fall, mm. um, just getting a little lightheaded. And sometimes they can't get up. Thank goodness for the clapper. <laughs> um, so, and of course the accuracy, which has been a real issue uh, with this swabbing. I know it's something uh, Heather and I have discussed a number of times is how are we swabbing these people? And, and she noted that really you need to swab for a minute of 10, a minimum of 10 seconds it, that in a perfect world, you'd rotate that three times. Imagine that in your nose, rotating three times. And then aggressive enough to make people's eyes water. Uh, and, of course, she mentioned that if you're doing this to somebody, better have a PPE yes. on because you're going to get sprayed. I just, I'm glad she said it in that much description, actually, because I think a lot of people think it's just like a influenza swab where you just kind of put it in there and swab around and call it good but like a tickle me elmo no no we're no. trying to really rub it up and then, and wow and then a pattern with testing kind of came back later in the in the talk today about whether oropharyngeal swabs were just as good and we might uh, the state even said we might have to start going to some oral swabs just because they're easier to produce um the swab the actual swabs even though our minnesota is now kind of pushing for let's test everybody we just still don't have all of the equipment and the ability to do the testing so there might be some oral swabbing coming up soon um, but amanda did not excuse me dr noska did not have any specific description on how to get a, the best oral swab now there's all all this stuff about uh, you know the antibody testing now and of course minnesota is starting doing more of that and in fact i've done quite a few i'd say probably a dozen um, and this obviously can be helpful in identifying those people that are PP- PCR negative, not PPE negative. They're PCR negative, but um, she wanted to remind people that just because they're 
IgG is positive does not mean that these people are immune and that there's certainly cases of uh, reinfection. And so really interpreting that IgG cautiously is important. That was just amazing to me. You know, initially, I think when we first started looking and all the research and all the the journal articles, you know, they talked about people getting reinfected, tended to get more sick and have more of the cytokine storm. Um, and just hearing Dr. Noska say that it's not necessarily a lifelong immunity and that it's still important to be cautious. Um, it's definitely just super interesting to hear that. Um, people ask questions about viral shedding, you know, as far as if you've had it, how long are you shedding this virus? Um, really, the answer is still completely unknown. But for the average patient, again, 14 days from the positive test, they should be quarantined. But if they're in the ICU, severe disease, intubated, um, a good month even, because um, yeah. of the reports of 56 to 58 days. Of- 56, she could not remember the exact day. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's really important that uh, one of the questions posed was really how long do you have to stay away from people? And in those patients who have more severe disease, uh, obviously uh, they may shed longer. So that was really something she wanted to impress people with. Well, and with that, with the whole viral shedding thing, there was questions posed about steroids and whether giving a person steroids, if you're thinking it's some other type of respiratory infection or allergy or asthma exacerbation, um, she did say that would ramp up viral shedding. Um, but she did note that viral shedding might not all be considered equal and whether the virus is alive and virulent still in the shedding is still a little bit unknown. It's kind of like dogs. They shed differently. Their hair. I need a poodle. They don't shed. Okay. So one of the things with the antibody testing, and to be clear, this is not antigen testing. It's antibody testing. uh, That really, you don't want to be testing patients till roughly 14 days from the first onset of their symptoms. And even if their symptoms were onset of headache or something else, uh, that 14 day is where you're going to get a start to get that increase in uh, positive tests. So and this is the IgG test. The IgG test. Um, and really, it's she did a couple touch base on a little bit of um, treatments. Um, not really going into too much details on that. And she had gone through this huge thing, which we'll kind of get into, is some of the the different places that treatments act in the how COVID. Um, kind of infect cells, you know, going through this ACE2 um, angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor is how the the COVID virus or coronavirus, excuse me, gets into the cells and how these, again, are all over your body, esophagus, lung, small tissue, small intestine, excuse me, colon, stomach, kidneys, testes, among others. Small uh, tissue like your brain. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, they said necrotizing encephalitis isn't necessarily proven. Um, but how different treatments definitely approach these things differently um, the toll-like receptors and endosomes, really complicated stuff. The, the key is, is this is where everybody's want to put all their money in the one place. Hydroxychloroquine does act um, at that location, at these endosomes in the cells. Um, again, hydroxychloroquine is not the, um, the end-all be-all, but that is how it acts in the cells. Man, she talked about a lot of stuff that went way over my head. Sure did. I mean, I'm, I'm at the age where I'm probably not retaining as much. Um, but she talked a lot about these CD4 helper T-cells, like triggering this virus-specific CD8 and cytotoxic T-cell responses. How was that? that was um, and so, you know, it, that just went right over my head. But it was it was extreme. All the stuff she said was just like, uh, so every almost every word out of her mouth was important today. 
Um, but she also talked some about the antigen-specific B cells and the virus-specific antibody production, how important this is. Uh, I mean, this is that long-term immunity. And this is, yeah. I think, where she was getting with the whole long-term. We might not have long-term immunity because it's not just your body's ability to make antibodies to this current antigen that's coming into your body, the coronavirus, but then being able to keep these neutralizing antibodies long-term. So if you are re-exposed to coronavirus, it is then able to make you not get sick again. Yeah, this whole neutralizing antibody. And actually, that's been in the literature for weeks. It sure has. uh, Where we've been reading a lot about that uh, with time, and I think that's going to be kind of one of the keys. Hey, there's that word, immunosenescence. That means your immune system is aging. (laughs) and can't play a... yeah, they're just not able to make as many uh, antibodies against new uh, antigens. Yeah, I get a I get a finger prick, and I actually lost my finger. I think that must be what I have. So Immunosenescence anyway. in older patients, older being eighty and above, and I'm only much less than that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, let's. I don't think really going to the super specifics of the virology, although it's super interesting. We will put these notes up with our um, podcast today. Um, these bullet points, in case people are really eager to to look at them. Um, but then again, she talked about three different types of antibody testing. And again, this is super complicated, but the different types of um, rapid point of care immunoassays. So these types of lateral flow assays versus enzyme linked immunoassays, these ELISA tests versus these neutralizing anti SARS CoV 2 total antibody assays. Take home point is not all antibody tests are created equally. So even if you get an antibody test on a patient, um, that does not necessarily mean it's negative. So it is okay to potentially retest a patient, even if they had a negative PCR, a negative antibody. It is reasonable to recheck an antibody even a month later, Um, Mm -hmm. just because depending on the exact test that was done and the type of antibody test that was done, it might not be a true negative. Yeah, well, she talked about these rapid uh, lateral flow assays and uh, it's kind of like buying the off-brand in the store, I think. You get the rapid turnaround, but and they're low cost, but sadly they're low sensitivity. So you're going to miss some of those cases. And and so I think that was kind of her takeaway is that the lateral flow assays tended to be, uh, they're quick, but they're, they're not always going to pick up everybody. Yeah, and, you know, if, even though you and I have ordered antibody testing, I couldn't even tell you what one we're doing in our place. I know we're not doing the rapid, but... I'm assuming we're doing these ELISA. Um, I believe but, they're an ELISA. But I'm not quite sure. Um, now, of course, there's these research-based antibody assays that are going to be the highest standard, gold standard, um, can get really good titers, very technical, very labor-intensive. So this is more in the whole research investigation type stuff, not yeah. necessarily in the day-to-day user-friendly. Well, if form. I had a lab, that's what I'd be doing. Probably me in the Mayo Clinic would be running those. They'd be running it on you. You'd be the test animal, <laughs> not actually the researcher. It'd be like in a cage next to a, some some monkey. Again, take home, not every antibody is considered equal. Um, and there's just a lot that's going. Um, and then we kind of went into this whole case thing, and uh, Dr. Gopal Punjabi did have um, a lot more to add, again, as far as imaging um couple big points he made um, in, in relation to the case that was presented was a few of the things that tend to point against COVID um, would make a COVID infection much less likely would be, of course, these effusions seen on CT, um, as well as adenopathy, which 
I guess I hadn't personally read a lot of that because um, yeah. radiology stuff is confusing to me. So adenopathy and effusion, much less likely to be COVID, but not 100%. Yeah. And I think that uh, in the studies that I read, it was roughly 5% of people in some of the China studies uh, actually had pleural effusions. Actually, I looked at one um, one study where they had like 10 people and uh, actually one of them died who had pleural effusions, but they actually had uh, positive COVID testing. and. Uh, one of the plural effusions died. Well, and I think uh, Dr. Punjabi had mentioned um, when we talked with him yesterday in preparation for today that the patients he's seen at Hennepin Healthcare that also had a plural effusion also had another secondary secondary infection, um, most commonly MRSA. So definitely something to be aware of. Yeah. But yeah, he had a lot of really good points, had some great pictures, showed some very um, typical uh, GGO pa- patients, uh, ground glass the ground glass, grass look, and <laughs> ground grass, ground glass look. Uh, but really, the point with those, when you see those on CT, you'll still see the arteries going through them. And remember that if you're looking at a CT and you see consolidation, you will not be able to see the arteries going through. So that's really that distinction. And, you know, we, we had a lot of good discussion, I think, mostly with him um, on differences. Uh, a question was asked by the ever-amazing Dr. Beth Bilden, toxicologist in Duluth, about what does a COVID CT look like versus a vaping lung injury CT look like? And really, there it, it, that's a good question. Even Dr. Punjabi didn't have a specific answer for it yet today. So hopefully by Thursday, we might have a little bit more. But Well, he said they're um, very, at times they're very similar. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of questions about whether we're going to be doing a lot more CTs. If a patient gets admitted with COVID, should you automatically CT them looking for a PE because it is just so much more common? He doesn't think that that's going to happen in our country like it did in some of the European countries, um, just because it's just not a good utilization of medical resources. Um, but that really looking at this D-dimer um, type threshold thing, yeah. which hopefully the hematologist will be able to talk about a little bit more in a couple. Um, yeah. I think couple it's days. that whole question: Do we where where do we put the normal for a D-dimer? Because all of us have been seeing these D-dimers have been elevated, and in fact, the case that was presented. Um, young young man, 16-year-old, five liters of oxygen, CT that would be atypical for COVID, but had an elevated D-dimer. Uh, and, and a CRP quite a high. CRP re- peaked out at about 13, 14. And, and he had a lot of interesting findings. And, and in fact, that D-dimer uh, obviously was not linked to clot. Um, and in fact, as we discussed that case, um, uh, he actually had a negative COVID in the hospital had a negative um, antibody, antibody, yeah, at 14 days, and even Dr. Naska said that having a a person that age on oxygen with all these symptoms, still you cannot rule out COVID, and probably should have another antibody in about 10 to 14 days. What an intro! <laughs> Watching her reaction during that case study was just super awesome to me. Yeah. Um. So, so sometimes it's just it's just knowing that something probably isn't COVID, but you have to treat them like COVID. Uh, and I think one of the things that people kind of looked at with this case is that the patient initially got nebbed uh, in the ER, which uh, obviously if we're considering COVID at all, or and we should with anybody who's short of breath, uh, probably nebbing them in the presence of other people is probably not a great idea. So don't do that, Heather. Don't nab. Okay. Don't nab. So then we kind of transitioned to Joe Helly, of course, at the um, Incident Command, and we will have more updates from Incident Command on Thursday when uh, Dr. Hick Is it comes Incident back. Command or is it uh, Emergency 
response Homeland team. Homeland Security, Security Emergency Management Team. It's like way above our pay grade. Way above. Um, They're getting paid. We're not. <laughs> but Dr. Hick, you know, is out doing a lot of work with FEMA, actually, um, on the whole long-term care thing. Because Minnesota, again, as we mentioned earlier, um, the, the deaths just keep jumping because of these long-term care facilities. And he actually was able to pull the data by the end saying there are currently, as of right now, 111 long-term care facilities in Minnesota um, with outbreaks. And they consider an outbreak 10 or more cases of residents. So, um, you know, how many other that don't have 10 yet or 10 diagnosed yet? I mean, this is just astronomical numbers. Um, yeah, and they're, of course, continue to be focused on these groups. Um, and I, I know that... Uh, those uh, groups, as well as groups, uh, large businesses, some of the uh, animal processing plants have been hit, but uh, those in long-term care, I think, are probably a priority. And uh, the whole, they're starting to try to come up with long-term care facilities that will take COVID-positive people, like transition. So if they're leaving the hospital because they're improving, but they've been COVID-positive and they don't want to send them back to mm. a long-term care how they're going to be able to rearrange some of these beds. Um, that's kind of a huge focus right now in our state. Um, I, think, I think it would be really interesting if you just said that they're focusing on like chess clubs. Just a thought, but they're not. No, they're definitely it's not. They are care. looking. They are looking at 3D printed swabs though. You know, those are those printer things. Although I did see a journal article about a week or two ago about how the 3D printed swabs just are not doing as well um, in the actual tested you know let's uh, have to do with to chess clubs i'm just it thinking they, i'm going with i'm the, just saying they could focus on like hey we should really get into screening chess clubs chess club but, you could do six feet apart that's true yeah anyway there are still testing even though the whole governor and mayo clinic did this amazing let's all partner which is awesome and let's test people i think this is great because if you're going to open the state you need to know what everybody's status is although that sounds very bizarre um it's still the supplies, the test swabs, the reagents. It's still a problem. Um, but ironically and very interestingly, 99% of Minnesota residents do live within 60 miles of an actual testing site. You know what's really interesting about that? What's that, Kurt? Well, the first part is like, you know, Mayo Clinic was uh, partnered with the U of M, all these people. And I was up for two nights. I thought they want to partner with us. You right. Know. I know we kind of partnered coming. with everybody, but I didn't see that coming. I thought, hey, can you guys start testing people? Yeah. And we'd had them like, no, <laughs> <laughs> we can't. So, with the increase in testing, if you look at all the Minnesota numbers, obviously our cases have gone up. We've actually had a, a quick spike in positive cases in Minnesota, I noticed today. Um, but if you're testing more people, you're going to probably find more positives. Um, but if you're looking at hospitalization, ICU, and looking at those numbers, although they're up a hair, um, they're pretty stable, which is very good. That means the curve is still pretty flat. And how they're considering that is um, that the curve is currently still doubling every 10 days, not more frequently. So it's still manageable. So let's talk about what's coming up before we finish up here. <clears throat> we have uh, Jed. I'm trying to remember his last name. Gorton. Gorlin. Gorlin. I don't know, hematologist. Hematologist coming on Thursday. And he's going to be talking about a lot of interesting stuff, some of the clotting issues with COVID-19 and convalescent plasma. plasma. Uh, so, and I've, we've looked at his talk. It's, uh, I didn't, I didn't understand a word he said, but <clears throat> you know, I'm a little bit older than you. There was words in there I'd never seen. And then. Uh, convalescent. <laughs> yeah, convalescent. Isn't that the convalescent home? I know what that is. 
It's like, oh, you just got your hip fixed. You're going to the convalescent home, Kurt. Oh, God. Okay, but anyway. Um, and then next Tuesday, um, we have people from Fairview Home Care Hospice and just kind of home care in general talking about different symptom management from COVID. So whether it's a patient who doesn't necessarily qualify to be admitted inpatient, different ways to help um, mitigate some of their symptoms and their discomfort at home or if it's a patient who just really doesn't want to be intubated and hospitalized, how the, how to make us primary care doctors comfortable prescribing medications that in our regular world of addiction we don't like to prescribe. To be clear, I don't think anybody wants to be intubated. So what's Thursday then next week? That's, Thursday next week is the really awesome long-term care discussion. A lot of MDH. Uh, Chris Ayersman's coming back to talk about some of their long-term care things. Hopefully, Dr. Hick will have some updates from FEMA even on this, just with this being such an issue in Minnesota. And lastly, just remember that our podcast uh, released today was the Charlie, Charlie Reznikoff with uh, with us talking about uh, people, I think, was it people in recovery or people? No, people who've never used, talking about people who use. In their songs, yes. rock and roll. There so, we go. So we're going to uh, sign off with that. We have a little uh, song, I believe, um, our in-house band, Battle Eggs, I believe it's called Ability Scores. Ability Scores from Battle Eggs. Till next week, or till Thursday. Till Thursday. I like waffle fries. I went to the pub, just about three. The waitress smiled and she winked at me. She said, here is my number, you should drop on by. I said, please, could you get me the waffle fries? Good news is they have waffle fries. They have waffle fries. 